Leviticus. Yeah. Um, so Leviticus is an intimidating book for a lot of people. Um, I think if we're honest, some of you, probably many of you, over the years have woke, woken up on 1st of January and said, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And you started in Genesis, and you thought Genesis was pretty interesting, and you read through Exodus, and you read about the Exodus and Ten Commandments. And then you got to Leviticus, and you realized this is going to be a little harder than maybe I anticipated, right? Um, and if we're honest with ourselves, probably very few people, I'm going to guess very few people, but also very few people in this room have really studied Leviticus, right? Um, probably there's those of you who have been believers for a while, maybe you've read some general synopses of Leviticus, you've watched the Bible Project summary video or something like that. But Leviticus is a book that's often overlooked. But you have to remember that when, you know, Paul, for example, when they talk about the law and the impact of the law, when we read Psalm 119, and it talks about having delight in the law, meditating on the law day and night, how the law is sweeter than honey, Psalm 19, how it is just, you know, the, the, the crowning glory of my existence you have to realize they're, the author of, of these verses is referring to the Torah, what we would call the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, when we get to the prophetics, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then all of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament— you know, you, it's, it's sometimes we hear the word prophecy and we think culturally, we think Nostradamus, right? And we think prophecy is about telling the future. And indeed, there is, the fancy term for that is eschatological or apocalyptic. There are eschatological or apocalyptic elements to prophecy at times. But the majority of what we would call prophecy in the Old Testament actually reads more like sermons delivered by God's spokesmen as they look at the law and then proclaim God's promised judgments as revealed in the law. And so, in other words, these are men who were studying the Torah and then looking at what they knew was in the Torah, inspired by God, by his Holy Spirit, to then proclaim truth to the people around them about what God had already promised was going to happen. And so these are important books, but Leviticus is an intimidating book. We can be honest about that. Um, if you've never read Leviticus, okay. <laughs> Stories of sacrifice, sacrificing animals, um, the killing of animals, Stories of priests, rules for priests, what they need to wear, how they need to dress, what they need to do, putting blood on their ears, all of this kind of stuff. Holidays, you know, the various festivals that are prevalent in Hebrew history. Festivals, there's laws about purity, laws about being clean, laws about being unclean, about the type of clothes you can wear, the type of clothes you can't wear, the type of food you can eat, the type of food you can't eat. There's laws about ethics for the community, the way you should treat strangers, the way you should treat your neighbor. 
All of these things are found in the book of Leviticus. Central to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16 of the book is something called the Day of Atonement. For those of you who are teachers, you like it because you get off that day. It's called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, um, Kippur in the Hebrew could also be translated as covering. It's the Day of Covering. And if you know anything about Leviticus at all, if, if the average churchgoer, I, I, and I say that generally speaking as people who grew up in the church and they heard about the Bible here and there, if people know anything about Leviticus, they typically know that it has a bunch of random rules and it has the Day of Atonement at its center. The Day of Atonement is a day when the high priest would sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the people of God and then would put that blood one time a year, he could go into the most holy place of the temp tabernacle or the temple, depending on the, the, uh, the historical time, you know, would put that on the mercy seat, and that would cover the sins of the community for a year. And then on another, another sacrifice, they would cast all of the sins of the community on a goat, which was called Azazel. And they would send that goat into the wilderness, and it was a sign of God is removing sin far away from them. So what's the point of Leviticus? So in a nutshell, Leviticus reads like a contract between a king and his people. If you were to read um, extra-biblical sources, and I don't mean things that we think are inspired, I mean books treaties, contracts, government documents that were written around the same time, if you were to read other documents, you would realize that Leviticus very much reads like a contract between a king and his people. It has lists of rules, expectations, and requirements about what people must do, what the king expects of them. Now, it's important to make note of this reality. The laws are never about how to become the king's subjects. See, this is something that people kind of have a misinterpretation when they think about the Old Testament and when they presuppose how they think Jewish people felt, okay? Ancient Hebrew people felt. The, the law was never about how to become a member of God's covenant community. That was by nature of the fact that they were chosen. They were promised in the Abrahamic promise, they were going to receive this blessing, be this people. They were by their, what they believed, their ethnicity to be that covenant people. But the law was how God was describing how his people should look if they're going to be sharing the same space as him in what would become the promised land. Now, the reality is this. Leviticus is about how this sinful, impure, chosen people can live in the presence of a holy, pure God. That's what Leviticus is all about. Now, if you think that's a strange concept, you have to realize that even in our own culture, certain spaces have certain expectations, even if they're not always written down. And this is what I mean. Um, we have expectations and rules for how we live in today's day and age. If you go on an airplane in 2021, what do you need to wear? 
a mask, right? And so we have this designated space and we have expectations of how you dress, so to say, in that designated space. If we were to go visit the Queen of England, you wouldn't go in like a onesie zip-up pajama with like little butterflies on it, okay? And that would be inappropriate. You realize that's inappropriate attire to meet the Queen of England unless you're in the book The BFG by Roel Dahl. Then it's acceptable, okay? And so um, we have these concepts in our own culture, but when we read them in another culture, we think it's strange. You know, it's like, well, what do you mean they got to wear this thing and they got to wear that thing and they got to wear these tassels? And, but culturally speaking, we have these same kinds of concepts. Okay, so Leviticus outlines how the Israelites could live and would live in God's presence. Now, to really understand why that's crucial, we need to dial it back, and we need to look at the historical context of the book. And so I know that some of you have heard these things a hundred times, but bear with me. Um, in the beginning, we see this picture of this garden called Eden. God creates, he creates canisters, he fills the canisters. Creates the sky, fills it with luminaries. He creates the earth, he fills it with animals. He creates the water, he fills it with, with animals, right? And then he creates um, Adam and Eve. He creates Adam in his image. Specifically, not in his image, he creates Adam as his image, as a representation of the king on earth. And what we see in the book of Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2 are like two overlapping circles, okay? And so you think of two circles that are overlapping. This is God's space and created natural space completely overlapping. God walks with them in the cool of the day, the sacred space of the divine and the natural space of creation are one. They overlap completely. But and was commonly referred to as the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we see that there is insubordination and rebellion. That even in that sacred space, God had clear expectations of what he wanted them to do. They were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat freely from the, from the tree of life. And God put them in the garden, and he put them there to maintain it and to keep it. In, in, in a work, in work, but in effortless work that was born out of rest and led to rest. Now, they throw off God's oppressive yoke when they decide they're going to listen to the voice of the tempter who says, if you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. In other words, you'll be able to know what is good and evil for yourself. You can make those decisions for yourself. You no longer need to function as God's image his representative of dominion on earth. Instead, you can be your own king, essentially, when you don't have to be submissive to him. And so what happens is they, they choose rebellion, they choose insubordination, and God gives a series of curses, ramifications that are going to happen because of that. Some of those things you remember, um, ladies, one of those curses is, is pain and childbearing, one of the curses is that the ground will no longer give vegetables easily. Instead, it's going to be riddled with thorns and difficulty, and you're going to have to till it with the sweat of your brow. And we see that there's going to be enmity or animosity or hatred between the line of the serpent and the line of Eve. 
So there's this idea there's going to be this spiritual battle between the unseen progeny, if you will, of Satan, Satan and all his minions, right? Fallen angels, demons, that's another, that's another book, right? And then, and then mankind. And part of that is God says, if you eat from the tree of life in this state, then you'll live forever. But we won't be able to coexist because God is pure. He's perfect. So it says that at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it says, lest they eat, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever, let us remove them from our presence. And so God removes them. And so think back to those two circles that are overlapping. And in that moment, those circles are now apart. Those circles are now in two separate places. You have the divine realm and you have the human realm. Now, in that, God made a promise. He said, um, Eve, your progeny, your descendants are going to be against the descendants of the serpent, but uh, he will bruise your heel, you will crush his head. And that's called, in fancy term, the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first prophecy that looks forward to Jesus Christ, right? That that looks forward to Jesus Christ, the promised one who's going to crush the serpent's head, okay? Now, what happens following that is humans figure it out, right? No. Matter of fact, it gets so bad that when you get to Genesis 5, 6, God says that their man's intent of his heart was so evil. Every intention of his heart was evil. And the, and the world begins to get increasingly corrupted. It gets corrupted by sin. It gets corrupted by impurity. And it gets corrupted by divine sacrilege. As it says, the sons of God, these fallen angels intermixed with the daughters of Eve, give birth to these monstrosities called the Nephilim, another book, right? Another story, another time, another sermon series, okay? And what happens is God says this, this corruption can no longer remain. And so what God does is he executes another judgment. Just like he had in the garden, he executes another judgment, and this judgment is the global flood right? And so God purges the land because it needs to be cleansed of its impurity. And then after all is said and done and Noah's on Mount Ararat and, and his people and his, his family comes out and they start to have kids again. And you think, maybe we finally figured it out this time. But we didn't. Because again, wickedness increases and increases and God gave clear commands of what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to scatter and be fruitful and multiply and they again rebel against God and his clear commands and they decide instead they're going to stay in one location. They're going to build a tower to heaven called Babel where they can seek their own glory because if man puts his mind together with other people, what can we not accomplish? I mean, we can create viruses, we can, um, never mind, too political, okay? And so the point is, we put our minds together and what we create is wickedness. And God looks down and he says, once again, the world has become increasingly corrupt. And so as he exiled them from the garden and he kind of, quote, exiled them in the flood, now God is going to, quote, exile them again by scattering the people. Now, in the Jewish Hebrew worldview, what happens here is God scatters the nations and he distributes them. This is Deuteronomy 32, 
God distributes them and essentially distributes them to who? To, to fallen beings, to fallen, falling, fallen spiritual beings. In other words, this is what we see in Daniel, the prince of Persia, right? This demonic figure that oversees that region. The idea is that it says that God distributes the nations and now they are subjected to demonic rule. This is the Hebrew worldview, even though you may be thinking to myself, this guy's making this up. I never heard Charles Stanley talk about this, not a single time. This is the Jewish worldview. You can think I'm crazy, but I'll show you. So God exiles them. This time he exiles them essentially to demonic powers, right? Just think of it like that. But he makes another promise. And the promise we see in the next chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, when God isolates one man and he says, Abram, who had no kids at the time, he says, I claim you and I'm going to make you into a nation. And guess who's going to be the one in charge of that nation? I am. You're going to be my people. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make you into a blessing. I'm going to give you a land. And he makes these unconditional promises to Abraham. And from that beginning, that is the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel. And we see, we don't have time to talk about Isaac and Jacob and all of these different things that God did during that time. But eventually, those promises had yet to come to fruition. They had yet to be a nation. They had yet to be a kingdom. They had yet to have a land, these sorts of things. And so um, what we do find is that they're in slavery to Egypt. And as being in slavery to Egypt, they're also subject to Egypt's rulers. And I don't just mean Pharaoh. Who else do I mean? I mean the spiritual beings who, quote, are in charge of Egypt, the demonic powers that are represented, represented when we think about the gods of Egypt, right? The sun god Ra and Anat and all of these different spiritual beings that are essentially demonic. And so what we see in the, in the Exodus, and if you've ever saw a Charlton Heston movie, right? He says, what we see in the Exodus is we see God declaring war against the spiritual powers at B, both in the spiritual realm as he turns the sun to darkness, this direct offense against the sun god. He turns the Nile to blood, this direct attack against the god of the Nile. And he begins to go through this process and he rescues his people, ransoms his people out of Egypt and he brings them across the Red Sea. And now we have the, you know, where Moses gets the Ten Commandments and he says, you will be my people, I will be your God. I will be your king. And he gives them the law, a covenant contract showing this is what my people are like, I'm, this is what your king is like, this is what the land will be like. I have chosen you among all the nations of the world to be my nation. That's why God says this. It says that he distributed all of the nations of the world to the demonic spiritual beings, but he says, as for Israel, Israel is my inheritance. The other nations belong right now to these spiritual powers. And so this is the story of the birth of Israel, the beginning of Israel. This nation that would be set aside, holy, to the purposes of God, to the kingship of God, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish ultimately through Christ. And so he gives them a new nation. He's their king. He's a new king. He gives them a law. 
And, and then one of the things he gives them at the end of Exodus is he tells them to build this tabernacle because they're wandering around in the desert. They're not at the promised land yet. And so he says, I want you to build this series of elaborate tents. And the, the author of Hebrews lets us know that the tabernacle is a shadow or an example of the same um, dwelling place of God in the heavenlies. Okay? And so they go and they build this tabernacle and they go to inaugurate it, and Moses is praying, and they're sacrificing animals, and all this kind of stuff, and the presence of God, now you have to think about this, think back to your little circles, okay? English majors, I want you to picture this is going to become a Venn diagram very soon, okay? Two separate circles, and then the tabernacle happens, the Venn diagram is formed as there is a little overlap of the circles and the presence of God, which hadn't been among the people since the Garden of Eden, rushes and fills the tabernacle. And the purity of God is so overwhelming, Moses can't go in. Matter of fact, we read later, not only is the purity of God so overwhelming, when people enter in inappropriately, they die. And therein lies the problem. How does a sinful, impure people live when there's this holy, divine being in their midst and not just get destroyed every day? See, God is holy. People are not. God's presence is like pure power. It's like pure glory. In the Bible Project video, if some of you have seen that, they compare it to the sun, right? It's like it's powerful. Don't get too close because it will melt you. And that's the same, that's a, that's a metaphor for the glory and power of God. How can a holy God tolerate an unholy people? And I mean that from a sin perspective, but also how can a holy as in pure God live in an, among an unholy or impure people who are living in an impure place? How can God's people live near his goodness without being destroyed? And so in Leviticus, the author um, gives us this series of solutions, solutions that are rituals. Uh, rituals are basically animal sacrifices, holidays and festivals, solutions that are priests. Priests are mediators between God and Israel, people who represent Israel on or represent Israel in God's presence. So it's like, well, if someone's going to die, like, uh, that's him, you know, that kind of idea. And then laws. And the laws are about how, how God's people are supposed to live, how they're supposed to stay pure, how they're supposed to be clean versus unclean, what they're supposed to eat, the fabric, all of those kinds of things. The point is this. Leviticus explains the how of being in God's presence while simultaneously looking forward to a permanent fix. You see, and this is what I think we don't understand about the law. And even if you've studied these things for years, I want you to try to open up your mind and think that maybe you haven't grasped it fully, that the laws in Leviticus don't actually solve the problem, okay? There's no way that every person in Israel could follow through on all the requirements. And I'll give you an example of that. There are sins... There are unintentional sins, there are impurities, and there are unintentional impurities. For example, if I touch a dead body, I am impure. 
If then you touch me, you are impure. But if you didn't know that I was impure, you wouldn't know that you needed to now be cleansed through ritual purification. And now everyone and everything you touch becomes, guess what? Impure. Now, let's be honest. If I do something like I accidentally step on a bird that ran into my tent window and now he's dead, it's like, oh, I'm impure. If you're like most people, you're going to go like this. All right, nobody saw me. Right? Now I'm impure. But Leviticus says, not only would you be impure if you touch me, but now as I walk around the land, guess what I'm making impure? I'm making the land impure. I'm making the entire area where we live impure. And now you begin to see the problem. There was no way that the people and the land could actually be purified. All of this was designed to point to something that was eventually going to solve the problem. See, the sacrificial system and the washings for purity are like trying to clean up a landfill with a mop and water. All of the water, all of the soap, all of the mops in the world aren't going to clean up the landfill. And even if eventually you cleaned up all the trash, all you'd be doing is scrubbing dirt, and you're not going to get the dirt clean. And that's the picture. See, blood and water were continuously flowing as a never-ending attempt to purify the land. But it would never be enough. And as an example of the severity of the problem of sin, I want you to realize like how, how stark in contrast this is to our false understanding of the way the sacrificial system works. We really we have these assumptions, but we never actually slow down to read the sacrificial system. As an example of the severity of the problem of sin and impurity, there's only sacrifice for unintentional sins. And then there's sacrifice for what you could call lesser sins. Like if I steal your axe, I have, to, I have to do a sacrifice and seek restitution. Okay? But other sins, like the sins all of us have committed, do you know what the sacrifice is for them? There's none. Do you know what the penalty is? Death. There's no sacrifice for King David when he kills Uriah. He should have been killed. There's no sacrifice for King David when he sleeps with Bathsheba. They should have both been killed. There's no sacrifice for disobeying your parents. You should be killed. And so the consequence for sin in Leviticus is death. And then there's sacrifice for unintentional and lesser sins. So we think of it like, well, you sin, you do a sacrifice, you're clean. No, you sin, you get killed. Because so important is the holiness of where God's presence lives that it needs to be constantly purged. And so Leviticus looks forward from cover to cover to the necessity of having a permanent fix. Matter of fact, it hints, and we saw this in Genesis 3, we saw it in Genesis 5 and 6, we saw it in the Tower of Babel, and we see it in the Old Testament as it continues that this is God's framework, is the land becomes polluted, 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 polluted. And then what does God always do? Reset. Polluted, 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 polluted. Reset. Polluted, 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 polluted. 
exile, polluted, 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 polluted. One day God will come to judge the quick and the dead. He'll trash this whole world and he'll make it new because we still need a final reset. See, this is the biblical image that we have. Just like the flood, just like Babel, the land will need an exile to reboot it in order to start afresh. But the reboot never solves the problem. There needs to be a permanent reboot in the new heaven and the new earth. And so Leviticus points to all of this. Are you guys kind of following me? So what other theological themes do we... So that's the point of Leviticus. So what other theological themes do we see in Leviticus? How do these tie in the New Testament? These are some of the themes we're going to be covering over however many weeks we're in this book, okay? Uh, One, God is Israel's king. They weren't a kingless nation. God was Israel's king. And so when they demand King Saul, they are rejecting King Yahweh, okay? And so God was Israel's king, and, and this is his contract with them. Two, the law is ultimately not only impossible for us to fulfill or for the Jews to fulfill, but it's also inadequate at providing the purification necessary to create a truly sacred space. All right, it's like God is dwelling in this sacred area that's constantly having mud dumped into it. And so at the same time, it's constantly being power washed. And so it's just a temporary space where God's presence can temporarily dwell. Leviticus, one of the things it will do is give you an appreciation for how powerful the gospel actually is. Because the whole idea is that God does have a new sacred space in which to dwell. What is it? It's his people. The people who are impure and sinful have ultimately had their dwelling place purified so that God could not tabernacle, but dwell within them as a promise of a future dwelling when he's with his people fully. Okay, And so you realize if one serious sin was enough to kill me, how rich is the mercy and grace of God that not only am I not dead, but that I have been declared sacred space. And that should blow your mind. That should blow your mind. And what did you do? Nothing. Nothing. That's the gospel, okay? By faith, what is accomplished, what the law could never do. The law could never truly provide the sacred space, but Jesus did what the law could not do. That's Romans chapter 8. I mean, it's the whole book of Romans, okay? Priests alone were able to enter into the sacred space of the innermost part of the tabernacle. They could only go in once a year, only to do the Day of Atonement. But Jesus went in once for all, sacrificed himself once for all as both the priest and the sacrifice. And now the author of Hebrews says, Let us then draw near with confidence into the most holy place. I mean, this is all rooted in Leviticus. This is all found in Leviticus. Now, not only, you don't need a priest to go into the innermost sanctum. You are the innermost sanctum. You can enter into the presence of God at any time if you are a follower of Christ. And you are a priest, a kingdom of priests. 
Again, there was a never-ending stream of blood from the sacrifices in ancient Israel, but Jesus sacrificed himself once for all. And all of these things and more will be explained as we go through Leviticus. So what do I hope for us to get out of this book? Okay, One, I want us to get a richer appreciation for the entirety of Scripture, even the books that are more challenging to read. Um, that these books, every verse, every word is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for rebuking and training so that the man or woman of God will be equipped for every good work, okay? These things are for our instruction and for our molding, even chapters about killing pigeons, okay? These have a purpose for us to make us more like Christ, to give us awe and wonder. So I want us to have a deeper appreciation for the scriptures, which ultimately means a deeper appreciation for Christ and, and for the Lord. Two, I want us to have a deep understanding of the holiness of God, which I think as Americans, as people who, who grow up in like a very relaxed culture, as people who aren't, uh, you know, who didn't grow up maybe as Muslim or as Jewish, and you had a different concept of ceremonial cleansing, right? If you were just kind of like a normal, run-of-the-mill American, we don't have a strong concept of holiness, but I hope that we get one. Three, a comprehensive awareness of the absolute terror of sin, of the absolute terror of sin. I don't think we appreciate just how destructive and terrible sin is which will lead us, these things will lead us ultimately to a fresh picture of the beauty of the gospel, right? Because as you understand God's holiness and as you understand your own depravity and as you understand the impossibility of bridging that gap, the gospel will be truer and more beautiful, more spectacular, more awe-inspiring to you. And finally, inspiration for living with kingdom ethic because much of the the heart of the laws that are given in Leviticus remain as Jesus then summarized the law by saying, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so we're going to explain those laws. So action steps, because today was just trying to like, I didn't want to just jump into Leviticus chapter one, okay? So action steps for Leviticus. All right, you don't have to do these, but I strongly suggest them, okay? One, Start reading Leviticus on your own. You know we're doing Leviticus, okay? I, I don't know. I, I think we're going to be in Leviticus. No, but not for a year, but because <laughs> I think people would freak out. But I think we're going to be in Leviticus for at least at least twenty weeks, okay? So you have time to begin reading Leviticus. You know, next week we're going to cover chapter one. So that means you have adequate time to read the first chapter of Leviticus. Though you should start reading the whole book. And if I was going to make a recommendation, I would tell you to just read the book of Leviticus on repeat over the, uh, in addition to your normal time with the Lord, okay? Two, if you go on Amazon.com um, for like $7, you can buy the ESV Leviticus Journal. And what that is, is it's just the book of Leviticus, and on the one half is the scripture, and on the other side is lined paper, so that you can use that little ESV journal for the entire sermon series to take extensive notes as you study and as we, as we teach, okay? You can get it cheaper on Christian book, but you have to pay like $50 in shipping, okay? 
And so, unless like your whole DG is going to buy it, if you can get your total above 100 bucks, it'll be free shipping, okay? Um, so, I would encourage you to buy the Leviticus journal. Um, and if you want to, I have been reading uh, Leviticus commentary by a guy named Jay Scalar, S-K-L-A-R. Um, if you want to read that along with us, read it along with us, okay? It's one of the kind of premier Leviticus commentaries, Jay Scalar, S-K-L-A-R. And so uh, those are three action steps that you could do, okay? Anybody have questions? Anything that was really unclear? All right. Can you just say the name of the first model The what? The Proto-Evangelium. Proto <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, um, I thank you for the book of Leviticus. I ask that you would help us to learn from your word so that we could grow in holiness, so that we could grow in worship, that we could grow in reverence, that we could grow in our understanding of the gospel, that we would grow in our understanding of the book of Hebrews, that we would grow in our understanding of the entirety of the scriptures. Pray that we wouldn't shy away from difficult things, but we would address them head on without scissors in our hands to cut out the things that we don't like. But instead, let us be good Bible interpreters who desire to get to the meaning of the text and then to see how it is relevant to our new covenant life in Christ. And so, Father, we ask these things in your holy name. We thank you that we can come to you in all of our impurity, in all of our sinfulness in the flesh, because we have been both purified and forgiven. In your name, amen.